0: Alright, and so we don't have Children's Church today because it's the fourth Sunday, but Marilyn's here if anybody wants to hang out in nursery, and uh, so that's there. Now you may have noticed today, uh, I have a couple taking you up on that, Marilyn, <laughs> um, you may have noticed today that we switched the uh, chairs around a little bit. That's for Lent, so as a church we decided that, as a church board, we decided we'd try to Arrange the seats a little different so we're all a little bit closer together some of you are now kind of in the front row we like that more of a round scenario we might even try some different configurations in the weeks ahead and then on Easter Sunday we'll go back to kind of our norm uh, and so that'll be kind of a fun way to think about worship a little bit differently I'll preach down here on the floor um, with kind of at your your level, so that'll be something a little bit different. I know some of you have probably also made other commitments for Lent, so I want to affirm that. Anything that you do during Lenten season is just about saying, I want to take a time in my life and do a little self-reflection, a little uh, opening myself up to the Holy Spirit and repenting and saying, what do you want to communicate to me Uh, that I can kind of quiet different parts of my life to hear and respond to. And so, uh, you know, you could do that in a variety of different ways. You can fast from sorts of... Entertainment and inputs. You can uh, fast from certain foods. But anytime that you do that fasting, maybe you fast on a certain day of the week, anytime you do that fasting, the important thing is to kind of build these reminders into your life that when you miss that thing, when you notice that you're fasting from that thing, it is a call to prayer and to seek Jesus. So you you experience that fast that you've decided, that thing that you've given up, when you say, oh man, I really miss that Diet Coke or that chocolate or that meat. Uh, the, the important thing in that moment is to say, Jesus, what do you want to communicate to me? Because as great as my desire is for this thing or that thing or to sit in the pews like we used to and the chairs like we used to, when I desire that old thing that I've given up, help me remind it, be reminded that I desire you more than anything else. So that's what those fasts and Lent are all about. It's, it's not just something to do. It's not a superstition. It's to build these patterns into your life where you say, Jesus, I need you more than anything else. And uh, that's a wonderful thing to be a part of. So I've been preaching through the Bible in a year. And uh, if you've been able to be here, we have got through Judges. Uh, we have a podcast online where you can catch up on sermons if you miss one. I think I, ex- I forgot to upload the Judges sermon, so I'll do that later this afternoon. The Judges Sermon will be up there, and all the sermons from Genesis to Judges will be up there. And um, it, we launch now into Matthew for. Lent. So we're going to take a break from the Old Testament and go to the Gospels for Lent. So we'll do a couple sermons in Matthew, a couple sermons in Luke, a couple sermons in John, and one sermon in Mark, and that'll bring us uh, through Easter. So that'll be exciting. And we've been talking about this series of going through the Bible. I've, I've described it as a story of God and his people. That's what scripture is. Scripture is the narrative that we've been given that reveals God to us in the context of a story of a God and his people. God who wants a relationship with his people And there is, you know, no more exciting moment. It's kind of the climax of the narrative of Scripture is that God shows up. God shows up to speak to his people. And so we've been walking through kind of God initiating this relationship with the chosen people. God who creates human beings and says, I want a relationship with you. I've I've kissed life into you. I've breathed life into your lips, and we're designed to have this intimate relationship where I'm part of every breath that you take, human beings saying, ah, I'm not so sure I want that. I want to kind of do things on my own. And then God constantly trying to bring people back into right relationship with Him, where eventually He says, well, one of the ways that I can communicate to the world who I am is by choosing a specific people and making them my family and pitching my tent among them. I'll live in their neighborhood, and then people, as they encounter them, will get to know me as the true God, and they'll be my witness through the world. So he chooses the Israelites, and we've kind of walked through that story, and things have gotten pretty complicated now as you get into Judges, as the people of Israel lose track of what that relationship is supposed to look like and start to worship false gods, and God has to deal with that. So we know that eventually, as this story continues, God is constantly reminding his people Well, uh, everything that I'm doing is preparing you for the moment where I show up, where I enter your world, where I am physically here. You can see me, touch me, hear me, experience me living among you as a human being. And we know we talked about in Genesis chapter 3 way back in December, as soon as human beings make that mistake we call the fall, do that sin where they decide to, to choose their own ability to live and that inward bent away from God that begins in the human being's life that we see in Genesis 3. As soon as that happens, God (coughs) speaks about the seed of the woman who will come and he will crush the serpent's head. And already he's beginning to say, just wait, I've got an answer for this. And the answer is Jesus. So we're going to begin to look at the story of Jesus as he displays himself to us in the gospels so just to introduce you to the book of Matthew add a little takeaways here from the book of Matthew the book of Matthew talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven God uh, Jesus is describing to the people listening to him what does it look like to live under the reign of God what does it look like to live in God's community and that's what he describes as the kingdom of heaven uh, Jesus Uh, is very intentional in Matthew in bringing up scriptures and prophecies, and Matthew does it on his own to describe how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So very appropriate for us as we come out of looking at the law to say, look at a book that is is really emphasizing that. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and he's the son of David. And then Matthew is, is great at bringing up these couple dynamics of Jesus being an amazing teacher who is also the Son of God. So, obviously, Matthew doesn't just say, oh, Jesus was great at teaching. He's saying, this is God who's come to teach us, who's come to give us what we need to understand and how to follow him. And he speaks it, he lives it, we can see it, we heard it, and I want to share it with you. So, that's what Matthew's all about. So, today I want to talk to you a little bit about, for Matthew 22... And uh, kind of the idea here is to choose to be the beloved of God, choose to be God's beloved. And that's the idea behind our passages today. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 4 through 13. 22, 4 through 13. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who have been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and and calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized the servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless, and the king told his attendants, Time hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. I wanted to start today, uh, just two spots in, Ma- in Matthew 22, but I wanted to start today with a parable. I've kind of plotted out where we're going in the Gospels, and I realized I didn't touch on a parable in any of the other sessions, so today I wanted to talk about a parable, because Jesus oftentimes chooses to teach us through stories. Um, and I, I think that's one of the reasons, as a, a church, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, important for us to think about the ways that God communicates to us through art, whether it's a, a good book or whether it's a good movie or whether it's a good play. All of these are examples of human beings trying to tell stories. Music. Music also is an example of people trying to tell stories. A painting. Even, all of this is an example of human beings trying to give you an image and tell you a story about a truth that's kind of something you can't just say, right? You could say... Uh, I've been watching some of the movies for the past year, and you could say to somebody, hey, it's more important to be a good person that cares about other people than it is to be a genius. You could say that, or you could make a movie about it, and you could help people understand it by telling them that story. And one of the movies that's kind of up for Oscar awards, that's what the point of that movie was. And I thought that was kind of an amazing thought to think about. What is more important in life, to be a genius who makes a work of genius that lasts forever, or to be a really good neighbor that, and, and somebody who really loves your kids and cares about them? What really lasts, you know? Um, and and, but that's something you can think about but a story kind of makes that come alive for you so that you think about it in a different way so I love the fact that Jesus over and over tells stories he says I want you to know what it's like to be part of the community that God's building what it's like to be in right relationship with God and he tells a story to illustrate it so he does that here in this passage Now, this is one of my favorite parables, the parable of the wedding banquet, but I prefer the version that's in Luke chapter 14 because it's a lot... Tamer. It's a tamer version. In Luke chapter 14, nobody's getting destroyed. Nobody's getting like, you know, tossed out on their rear end. It's more of this kind of idea of some people didn't accept the invitation, and so when the invitation didn't happen, the king invited everyone—the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Everyone that no one else would would uh, would think about people he didn't even know. He invited to the banquet. And when Chelsea and I got married, uh, that was one of my things that I really wanted to happen. Was at our reception, I wanted to invite like a whole group of people that might not get invited to wedding receptions very often. People that wouldn't necessarily be at the top of everybody's list. And so it was easier at, our, at the church that we were at. We had a monthly meal that we would serve for the community. And so we had our wedding on that that uh, Saturday when we would serve the monthly meal. And we just made that monthly meal a part of the, the wedding reception. And so it was, it was our, our chance to say, we want to have a Luke 14, a wedding banquet kind of wedding, where everyone's invited. Whether or not you've ever been invited to a wedding reception, whether or not anyone thinks that you're, you know, ever going to give them a gift that's super expensive and nice to help their their, their marriage off, right? Um, that, that doesn't matter. You're invited, you're welcome, and you can come. And so it was a beautiful experience, and that that's a beautiful concept in this passage. But there's more to this passage, obviously. Jesus is talking about a king who is upset that that uh, those he's invited, those who are important, aren't coming. He's keeping track of who's really been accepted and who's kind of an interloper who wasn't invited in, who's who's been a part of this. And so, one thing that I think is important to remember when we read the parables of Jesus is that it's usually not a good idea when you look at a parable of Jesus to see it strictly as an allegory. So, you know, in an allegory, for example, in Pilgrim's Progress, if you know the story of Pilgrim's Progress. You have have Pilgrim, and Pilgrim is a Christian, and as Christian travels through the world, he runs into the giant of despair. Do you know what the giant of despair represents? Despair, yes, good guess, yes. And so that happens over and over in the Pilgrim's Progress. He runs into somebody who is named the thing that he represents— That's strictly an allegory, and it's a beautiful thing. But most of Jesus' parables, if not all of Jesus' parables, are not allegories. He's not trying to say, specifically in this passage, the king is God. Think of the king as God, and everything the king does is what God is doing. It doesn't necessarily work that way, because if you think about the passage, and you think about the king and his son, if the king is the father and the son is Jesus, then really the person in this parable that you and I are, is the bride. And the bride doesn't even show up in the parable, per se. Like, the bride's not even a character. But we are the bride of Christ. We're the ones that, that God has called into eternal relationship, loving relationship with his Son, and, and this the whole experience of heaven as we see it in Revelation chapter 21 is this beautiful wedding banquet where all of us who love Jesus forever are with Jesus as one, so that marriage on earth and love on earth, all the love that we can experience, is only a, a shadow and an image of the love the unity, the, the experience of life with God that each of us are called to. The passage doesn't even dive into that, but we know that's the case. If we were writing an allegory, you'd go that way. So, Jesus here in this passage is more talking to us about what it's like in the community of God, in the kingdom that God's building, and he's looking at real world examples. He's saying, You know what kings are like here. <laughs> you know kings in this world, if you tick them off, they're going to destroy your town. You know, if, uh, if you've if you're gone somewhere, the king doesn't want you to go, and he finds you there, he'll kick you out. And the point of that is to say, like, if you're worried about the kings on the earth, how much more should you be concerned that you are really part of this community that God is building? How much more should you really think about your relationship with God and the call that he's placed on your life and saying yes to that? And Jesus is specifically speaking to the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the religious leaders who should know the laws and the prophets and the commandments of God, but they have rejected him, they've opposed him, they're not listening to anything that he's saying. Just a chapter before this, Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem, and he weeps over the city because he says, if only you'd known what would bring you peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. And a couple chapters after this, his disciples uh, say, wow, look at the temple. And Jesus begins to talk very seriously and sadly about the temple and say, Pretty soon, not one stone here will be left on another because of the choices that you're making to oppose God's Work in your life. It's not Jesus saying, well, God's going to wipe this temple off the map because you guys really ticked him off. But he's saying, here's the natural progression of what's going to happen if you continue to reject God's move in your life. Eventually, you're going to put yourselves in opposition of the greatest superpower in the world that the world has ever known, Rome. They're going to come and wipe this temple off the map because you've chosen to try to get your own thing instead of following the revelation of God right in front of you. So all of that's happening in this passage. Jesus is saying, realize the serious consequences of being outside of God's plan for your community, of of not wanting to be part of the uh, eternal covenant and union and marriage that God wants to have with you. So I, I think that's important for us to realize. I, I even read somewhere recently somebody was saying, well, this doesn't sound like a, a pacifist Jesus, like Jesus who is uh, loving and says, love your enemies. Here he's talking about destroying the king's enemies. That's an example of trying to read this as an allegory. It's not meant to be read as an allegory. It's meant to say, hey, if you're worried about what the king on earth says, worry so much more about being with God in right community with God because he wants to be in relationship with you. Um, what makes you part of the chosen that's the kind of the point of this passage many are invited few are chosen what makes me sure that i'm chosen to be at that wedding that when i think about jesus offering that engagement ring to his bride when i think about jesus saying i want to be an eternal relationship with you i want you by my side forever how do i know that i've heard the call to be on the side of jesus forever that's the question that he's bringing before these people and the question that we're meant to ask as we look at the passage. All right, I want to bring us to the next section here that kind of helps us answer that question. Uh, Matthew 22 verses 34 through 40. Twenty-two, thirty-four through 40. So he continues to get some questions. Here he's getting back and forth with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And in verse 34, it says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I I feel like here I could have asked um, Anna to play the the Queen's song, Another One Bites the Dust, because that's kind of what happens here. Like, the the questioners constantly come to Jesus. They think, oh, I've got the question that will stump him, and another one bites the dust over and over, and another one gone, another one gone, another one bites the dust. That's what happens when you come to Jesus with a question. He's always got an answer. He's always got the response that you need, but the Pharisees say, well, maybe we've got the answer. We can get him if we say, tell us the most important commandment, because surely, it will reveal something about the political, philosophical, theological bias of Jesus. We'll be able to kind of attack him from that direction. We'll be able to pigeonhole him here and say, ah, this is what this guy's all about, and that reveals his blasphemous tendencies, that reveals his heretical tendencies. We'll be able to get him if we go after him on this. But Jesus responds to this question about what's the most important commandment in the law, how am I going to distinguish between all these commandments, how am I going to uh, but, you know, uh, pit everybody against each other and how I respond to this. Jesus goes back to the Shema, which is what we read together as a congregation responsively. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And Jesus says, this is the most important commandment, and the others like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, in this, in this answer, takes Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and basically numbers with Leviticus, and, and, and Exodus, and he kind of places them all together and says, this is what it's all about. It's about learning to love God, and in that love for God, seeing yourself and your neighbor through God's perspective. It's, a, it's an amazing and brilliant response, which is what you'd expect from the person who inspired the Word of God, who inspired his people, who's been desiring relationship with his people. Uh, but I, I could today, of course, as a pastor, I could stand up here and say, the important thing for you is to love God and love other people. Go do that. Amen. Right? And you may have heard, you've probably heard sermons like that before. You know, Steph, uh, Steph had to swap out the song that we were going to sing at the end today because we discovered it had uh, the word um, ha I won't finish it because I'm not supposed to say it. But anyway, uh, during Lent, we try not to say A-L-E-L-I-U-A. Is that how you spell it? Anyway, we try not to say that uh, during Lent or or when it starts with H. But the whole song was about love. And she's like, oh, it fits perfectly with the sermon. You know, we have a lot of songs about loving God and loving other people. We have a lot of songs about falling in love with God uh, because we know we're supposed to love God. But I I want you to think today with me about the connection between what Jesus says here and the earlier passage um, that we read about, the story that Jesus tells about the wedding banquet. It's hugely significant that the God who shows up, Jesus, the Son of God, who comes to speak to us, look at us in the face and interact with our problems, says the issue at the heart of who you are and what's gone wrong in your world is that you don't love God enough. Now, Jesus doesn't say that here. He doesn't say it in a negative way, but I'm just kind of putting in that context in terms of the early passage. The issue at the heart of God's command to you is that he wants you to learn to love him. He wants you to learn to desire him, to have passion for him, to be committed to him, to put his needs above your own needs, and then that will drive how you look at the rest of your life. That will drive how you interact with the people who enter into your sphere who are also chosen to be loved by God, who are invited to the wedding banquet, who are called into eternal relationship with him. If you love God in the right way, everything else will make sense. That's what Jesus is saying about the law. If you you come to Jesus and you say, well, what about this law? Why does this... Why does it say this way? Uh, why does this kind of eating or, or, or washing your clothes or handling diseases law, why does that make sense? Jesus would say, everything is coming back to, everything that you see in the Old Testament is designed to make you ask the question, do I really love God, and do I really want to be in relationship with Him? That's what all of the Law and the Prophets are about. Everything hangs on these two commandments. And I want to I say that I think this is a super comforting and also a super challenging answer by Jesus. Because, uh, let's talk about the challenging part of it real quick. I think that it would probably be easier if the God who shows up said, the most important commandment is that you would parallel park your car correctly. Uh, and they would say, "You haven't. A, what, what's a car, right? But anyway, parallel park your horse or camel, correctly. I'm just saying, like, if God said, hey, look, here's what I need you to do. I need you to know how to make a toaster. We would all figure out how to make a toaster, whether or not we were mechanically inclined or not. We'd all figure out how to parallel park. We would all figure out how to follow this one simple, stupid rule so that God could be happy with us. But the God who shows up doesn't say it's, it, it, it's about this one simple, stupid rule that I want you to follow, um, because we already demonstrated we couldn't do that. We ate of the tree of life. Don't touch that. Or don't eat from that tree. The one tree you can't eat from, we went and ate from it. So I don't think we'd follow too well with the simple, stupid rule. The whole point that he's coming to us is to say it's about more than that. It's a relationship between you and I that I want you to be fully and completely invested in, to know me, to be in a relationship with me, to have passion for me the way that I have passion for you. To be eternally committed to me the way that I'm eternally committed to you. And the moment that God shows up is the moment he asks us to think about that and process that question. I want to show you a little movie clip today uh, because it it helps me. It's a story, like I said, it's a story to help me think about the question that God is asking me here. It's from one of my favorite movies, my favorite stage play, Fiddler on the Roof. And Fiddler on the Roof, it's a great story about Tevye and his wife and his daughters, his daughters are all uh, getting married and it's a big deal for him to try to figure out who they should be married to. And he has this conversation with his second daughter who says, I want to get married to this guy. He's like, well, this guy has absolutely no money. He's kind of crazy. He's also a communist. Are you sure you want to do this? And she says, yes, because I love him. And he's struck by the love that his two daughters who, who are getting married have. And he begins to ask the question, well, what does this mean for me and my wife? our marriage was arranged before we even met each other what does it mean for us and that's where we're going to pick up our clips so Anna if you can show us that clip So I, I enjoy that, that clip where, you know, just two people that are trying to live life and trying to survive in a difficult place and raise their children, all of a sudden they just say, well, what, do we really love each other? And I think that is what we need to bring in mind when we see what, how Jesus responds here. He says, look, God has come, he's shown up, you know all the laws, you know all the stories, you've heard all the prophets, you know how many mistakes you've made, but God showed up and the question he's asking is, do you love me? Are you completely and totally available to me? Are you in relationship with me? Are you committed to me? Is there passion in this relationship? Is it beyond emotion? Is it, is it beyond emotion, but it involves emotion? Is it mind and body and spirit and soul and heart and every part of my being? Do I love God? Do I want to be in relationship with him? Do I want to you know fight with him, starve with him, go through life with him? because that's what he wants for me. That's the kind of God we have. We could have we could have, you know, decided to worship and try to find a different false god that says follow this stupid rule and I'll be happy with you. Sacrifice this stupid animal and I'll be happy with you. But instead we have a God who says, "I want to have intimate relationship with you that changes everything about your life because that's the only way that you'll be whole for eternity. And I want you to be whole. I want you to be healed." I want you to be right. I care about you specifically. So as we go through Lent together, as we enter into this season of looking at the life of Jesus, I just ask you today to think with me, to hear Jesus saying, Do you love me? Let's pray. Lord, we know the answers. We know who you are. We know your words, and we've heard them so many times. And we've heard pastors over and over talk about the importance of loving you and and loving your people. We've heard pastors say that uh, the only way we're really going to love people the way we're supposed to is when we love you first and foremost, and we put what you want above all else so that we can put the best needs of others above all else. And all that's true, but it all comes down to the question, do we love you? With my heart and my mind and my soul, do I love you? Do, does Chelsea and Augie and, and, and Elliot and Zaylee do they see in me the desire to know you more and to love you more and to be more passionate about you and more committed to you and to put you above everything else, do they see that in me? And what can I do in my life to make sure that's the case? Whatever commitments are keeping me from the wedding banquet, I want to put those things aside. No matter how important they are, I want to put them aside. Whatever it is that I'm trying to hold on to to make myself uh, what I think I should be, the kind of clothes I dress myself up in to think that i fit in at the banquet, help me to put those aside and and be dressed in the righteousness that comes from you alone in the knowledge that you want to be in a relationship with me. Lord, not just because I'm a a Christian, I'm a pastor, and I'm supposed to love you. Do I want to love you? But because I'm in love with you, because I desire to know you, Jesus, and to be committed to you and to have you so in my life that you're in every thought that I have, every feeling that I have, every breath that I take, every move that I make. You're so intricately involved in that and I can't get away from it because I want that. I want it. I want that to be the case in my life, Jesus. I want to love you that way so as your people who've been called to love you, Lord, we want to worship you now and and offer you who we are just as we are, that you would bring us to your life. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and join us in worship as you're able.